Would you stand with me, friends, as we read this morning from Colossians chapter 3. We are looking at verse 14 as we open the word. For the help with context, I would like to read from verse 1 through verse 17. If you would listen again to the Lord's word. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which... There is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is the Lord's word. Amen. Please be seated. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you for this day and pray now for your blessing to be upon your word, upon this servant, and upon these, your people, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would protect your word going forward, that you would keep the evil one from stealing away the seed of the gospel. We ask for your grace. Pray that you would minister to us now. Um, and I humbly ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, friends, we have come to Colossians chapter 3. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Colossians 3. And as we've come into Colossians 3, remember this that the overarching theme we've been considering uh, in this chapter has been to be in practice what we are in principle. Be in practice. What we are in principle, if we are a new creature in Christ, then our behavior should reflect it. And if it doesn't, then there is a problem. Um, We have to remember that the behavior that the apostle calls us to is not a, uh, a means of collecting points with God. And, and what we... is such an interesting passage, and it's in a very interesting context. Remember this... Um, as I go off script here, um, remember this, that the false teachers were all about do this, do that, and you will have blessing, essentially. You will merit grace. 
Now that, that should raise a red flag. Anyone says do this and you'll receive grace, it's contradictory. Square round, right? <laughs> you go, that's nonsense. Um, grace, by very definition, is a blessing, is a benefit that is given to us. And so the false teachers taught this way. Do these things and you will find merit. Do these things and you'll find merit. But the problem comes when Christians do these other things, but again, do them to merit. I have long thought we're really good as Protestants at pointing the long finger at the Roman Catholics and saying, look at those Roman Catholics. They do all of those things thinking that God is pleased with them. They should stop doing those things. And they should start doing these things, <laughs> these Protestant things. And so the broader context, I think it's a very fascinating little verse that the apostle here writes in this verse 14. And I think you'll see why. I hope you'll see why. Anyways, we, we can fall into this trap of, of saying, I've, I've changed these bad things, and I'm doing now these good things, but the problem is we're still coming to God with things in our hands, right? What does the great hymn say? Nothing in these hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Yet Paul, talking to them, again, he's not against holiness, of course, He's not against putting off and putting on because this whole chapter is saying, become what you are. But notice what his focus is. Um, we can't merit favor from God. We are horribly marred by the fall and by our own transgressions. Rather, we endeavor to live in obedience to the Lord because of his great grace and mercy to us, friends. We cannot make ourselves right, as we've been saying any more than a, a man covered in dirt can clean himself with his own dirty hands. Our righteousness, friends, comes from Christ alone. Jesus Christ is sufficient. And that's the overarching uh, theme of the book of Colossians. Jesus Christ is sufficient. He's enough for us. It's a wonderful gospel. We do not and dare not then place our hope or our confidence in our flesh, as the false teachers in the Lycus Valley were teaching and had encouraged people, whose religion, remember, was centered on man and his performance. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, we read in chapter 2, who they had an appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and the severe treatment of the body, but were of no, these were of no value against fleshly indulgence. Quite the contrary, they would boast in their flesh, look at me. Look what I do. I don't eat these certain things. I don't go to those certain places. Um, I'm, I'm actually quite a stellar uh, saint. But Christ is the end of fleshly indulgence as we came into chapter 3. If these things aren't the end of fleshly indulgence, what is? And again, notice what he does. He takes us right into verse 1 of chapter 3. Christ is the end of fleshly indulgence. We are to stay focused on what Christ is, what Christ has done for us, and who we are now in him. So that knowing these things, we no longer live for our sinful flesh to indulge it, 
but to become now what we are in Jesus Christ. And I say these things by way of reminder to bring us up. I'm a strange guy. I don't know. I feel like my the way I deliver sermons, I, I start at the end of the runway and I have to build a certain speed before I can get the plane off. That's why I'm redundant from week to week. Um, but I think it's, it's worth saying because it's important that we understand how this thing plays out in our lives. We are to be what we are in Christ. So Paul has given a couple of commands here. Put to death the deeds of the flesh, verses 5 through 9. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech and lying. He says in, in chapter in verse 10, you have put on the new self who is being renewed, or we said renovated, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. But it is not merely what we put off, friends, but what we are told to put on. And this is where we were three weeks ago. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And this is what we, we, we've said this. Now, several times, this is, these are the virtues that the Christian should put on. These are the things we should be nurturing, cultivating, doing, so that we put on the virtues of Christ. But the problem comes, again, when you consider the false teachers and what they were saying, do this, don't do that, put on, put off. They're saying all these things, and it would almost appear that the apostle himself is saying, now you, let's put on these contrary things. The Catholics do this. The Protestants do this. Whose deeds are better? Can be a little problematic. Can't it? Because as Christians, we can put our confidence in the flesh just like anyone else. As Protestants, we are very good at putting on our confidence in the things we do. And when the apostle now goes to verse 14, you find out there's something deeper he's calling the people of God to. It's not just throwing off the old things and throwing on new things. You will see, friends, it's going to require a new heart. It requires a new heart. It's not just stopping to become, I'm, I'm no longer a pagan, now I'm a, a spiritual pagan. And yet you hear things like this. I'm spiritual. I'm a pagan, but I'm spiritual. Of course you are. You have a soul. You're spiritual. Okay. But you're not redeemed. You're not, a, you're not washed. That's the problem. Your deeds are the manifestation of the heart. It's the heart that's the issue. And that's where I find that the apostle now takes this, what he's saying, and he's driving it deeper much in the same way that Jesus would take the Sermon on the Mount and take the law, and he would drive it deeper. Ooh, it hurts. So put on these things, he says. This is what it looks like. Recall that these things produced in us by the Spirit of God, we, we mentioned the farmer uh, the simultaneously we are in working in conjunction with the Spirit of God. In one passage, he says it's the fruit of the Spirit. In another passage, he says, put these things on. The idea is that the Spirit of God is working in the Christian, and the Christian is called to nurture 
to, to make conditions conducive. You're all, it's springtime, right? And what are you doing now? You're out in your yards. You're starting to work in your gardens. You're starting to weed. You're raking and you're getting ready to plant. You probably have already started your seedlings at home and you're starting to do things. You're not able to make that seed grow. But you put it in the dirt and you water it and you do all of these things and then every morning you come out and you look. Is it growing? And then you see a seed sprouts. It pops. Comes right out of that dirt. And you rejoice because you can't even make it grow. But the Lord did. This is the idea. We are called to obey the Lord. And like a farmer who weeds and feeds his fields, so we too are to promote conditions conducive for the Spirit producing fruit in our lives. But notice that the apostle does not stop there. It is not the place we ought to stop. In other words, we mustn't be content with good enough. And sometimes in the church, we hear this or we've said this. That's good enough. That's good enough. Um, an example we had in a church down south where I was a pastor, we had a man and his family, um, it was a rough marriage. And they had a, a gaggle of children. And it was a real trial. One of the elders said, How long are we going to have to deal with them? What's the answer? As long as it takes. The attitude is, I've done enough. It's good enough. I've, I've, I've checked the boxes. I've, I've, uh, I've, I've, I've stopped the immorality. I've stopped the greed. I no longer use abusive language. I've done some nice things. I've shown compassion. I've, I've done some kind things. But I've done enough. I've gone far enough uh, in my efforts. We've done our duty. We've done what was required. But perhaps, friends, we have not done it in the right manner. Or perhaps we have not done it for the right reason. And this is where we find ourselves in verse 14. Again, listen to this. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. What's the apostle actually saying? Here's what he's saying. My friends, as believers, we are called to go beyond the call of duty. If he asks you to go one mile, you go with him too. If he asks for your outer garment, give him the one next to it. Do you see this? He's saying, we're not in the business of checking boxes. We're not just exchanging one set of duties for another set of duties. We're coming at this thing with our hearts. We're coming at this thing with love. Go beyond the call of duty. Again, listen to what he says, verses 12 through 14. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, he has commanded all of these things, these virtues of Christ, put these things on. 
And we are to put them on. We are supposed to adorn them, be clothed with the virtue, as in this case, with the virtues of Christ, as one would clothe themselves with a shirt or pants. Put on the heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, etc. But we can never say, nor should we ever say, there, did that, as if the bare minimum was enough. But how do you do that? Like there's some kind of low bar hurdle to Christianity. We have that all the time in the Lord's church. I've done enough. I've I've cared for them enough. I'm now given permission to just not care, not to love. He says, go beyond the call of duty. Beyond all these things, put on love. The NIV says, and over all these virtues, put on love. The New King James says, but above all these things, put on love. We might understand it to be saying more importantly or more necessary still or in addition to over and above all of these things, we are to put on love. There is here given a recognition of the supremacy of love over all these other virtues that he has listed. There's a supremacy to love. In other words, if I've done these other things, if I've shown kindness, if I've walked with exemplary humility, if I've been all gentleness and patience, forbearing and forgiving, but I have no love, you see, I've come short of what the Lord wants of me and how I'm to deal with you and how we are to deal with one another. John Calvin said this, for where love is lacking, all these things are sought for in vain. For where love is lacking, all these things are sought for in vain. But I've been kind. Ah, yeah. But have you been loving? Have you loved? We are not called to merely fulfill a duty to check a box, but to give ourselves in love to one another. Why? Because, again, love is supreme. Quoting uh, F.F. Bruce, he says this, Love is the active expression of justifying faith. Galatians 5, 6, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but listen, but faith working through love. Bruce says, Love is the primary fruit of the Spirit. Paul writes in Galatians 5, 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Bruce writes, Love is the supreme Christian grace. But now faith, hope, love, abide, these three. But the greatest of these is what? Love. And then Bruce writes, It is in love that all the commandments of God are summarized. Listen to Paul again in Romans 13, 9 and 10. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. My friends, I may do a lot of things and I may do them very well. But if there isn't love, I have fallen short of what the Lord has called me to do. He calls us to approach and to deal with one another in a way that goes beyond a perfunctory performance of virtues, which was the doctrine of the false teachers do these things and you will be good with God. And the Christian goes, if I do these things, I will be good with God. And if you have no love, 
you've missed the mark completely. That's the scriptures. How do we do this? How do we put on love? Beyond all these things, he says, put on love. What is this love that we are to have? Or as our translations insert here, put on. The world's idea of love is a reciprocal type of exchange. I see something in you to which I'm attracted, and I favor you and you towards me. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? What use is it if you greet those who greet you? Do not even the the heathens do this very thing? Um, I give to those uh, from whom I expect to be given, or I love those who love me. The love of this world is really a very self-serving, self-directed kind of love. This is what our Lord is not speaking about. The love that our Lord is speaking about is a love that seeks the best for the other. You're familiar with the different uh, Greek words for, for love, agape or phileo or eros or storge. We hear these things. Here the apostle, and there's not always this clean, neat distinction between these words. Uh, sometimes we want to make it uh, appear that way. This word here is the word you might expect, agape. Uh, it follows the verb, comes from the verb ag- agapao, It denotes an affection, a goodwill, a love, a benevolence. The verb itself means to have a preference for, wish well to, or regard the welfare of someone else. It is the love of Christians towards one another, of the benevolence which God in providing salvation for men has exhibited by sending his son to them and giving him up to death. So a great picture of this, and it was the reason I actually went uh, a couple of weeks back to the prodigal son as I was preparing for this, this actual verse and, and the picture of love. And so I go, what, what do we see? Where do we see this picture of love? And so we looked at the prodigal son. And remember what the Pharisees and scribes accused Jesus of doing, that he's receiving sinners and eating with them. And I want to say, and that's bad? Is that a bad thing? In their minds, it was definitely a bad thing. They did not understand the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In their minds, these sinners were unworthy and undeserving people. And the truth is, they were. And that is why the scribes and the Pharisees wouldn't have eaten with them. And it is precisely the reason why Jesus did. You see this? We're talking about the picture. What is love? What does it look like? So Jesus tells them, remember, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Remember, this lost son is a rebellious and hurtful son. And recall, the father, once the son has come to his senses, um, he receives his son back, and not minimally so. The father, we are told in this parable by Jesus, the father, while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Furthermore, he clothes him in in the best robe. He puts a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and he had the fattened calf killed. And they celebrated. Why did they celebrate? This son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Notice here in this passage, in this parable, that Jesus 
is demonstrating that the Father has pity, he has compassion, he has mercy, he bestows lavishly this grace, this love on this young man who was selfish, ungrateful, and squandered his inheritance on, on prostitutes. I mean, this guy stunk. He was even feeding and eating with the pigs. And Jesus says that this father welcomes him back. He takes pity upon him and pours grace upon such an ungrateful son. He gives to him everything. Our Lord had nothing to gain. Listen to me. He had nothing to gain personally from receiving sinners and eating with them. Nothing. Why did he do it? He did it purely for the benefit of the sinner. That's love. That's the kind of love that the Lord calls us to go beyond these other virtues and love. He eats with them. Jesus eats with them purely for their benefit, that they may come to know true life, life with God the Father through Christ the Lord. This is what he has done for us, friends. And this is love, writes John, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Stating further, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Again, John would write in John 15, um, saying this, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. He has called us to this. He has equipped us for this in Christ. Love does not look upon others for what they can get out of them. Rather, it looks upon others for how they may bless them. It does not determine who is worthy enough to be loved, but simply looks upon them as needing to be blessed. Beyond all these things, put on love. I'm going to read that paragraph again. Love does not look upon others for what they can get out of them. Rather, it looks upon others for how they may bless them. It does not determine who is worthy enough to be loved, but simply looks upon them as needing to be blessed. That's love. In this thought, then, listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 5. But I say to you, love your enemies. But they don't deserve it. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. My friends, this is the kind of love we must have for one another, the kind of love we are to put on. And we mustn't take the attitude, I've done enough. This kind of love goes beyond, well beyond the call of duty. Goes well beyond the call of duty. So why love? Because love is the perfect bond of unity. And let me restate this a little bit. This, this portion of the verse is a little bit, in my opinion, ethereal. Uh, love is the bond that unites us, leading to maturity in the Lord. The New King James uh, states it this way. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. I like that translation. The NAS, which I read to you, says, 
Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And again, you might come away from this saying, oh, because we're unified. As if unity, not a bad thing, of course, a great thing, of course. But ask yourself this, why is unity in the church important? Is it just for the sake of unity? It's just, well, we can say that we're unified. We're one. We've got these great things. Do you know why unity is so important? It is important, my friends, because without the various members of the body, we do not mature in the Lord. We do not become what we are supposed to be. What were the false teachers saying? And we're going to bounce back and forth a little bit here from uh, chapter 2, verse 19. Listen, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. If you want to be complete, said the false teachers, do these things, follow our, our, our prescription, and you will grow, and you will become a superior saint, as it were. And Paul himself is very concerned that we would become the renovated selves that we're supposed to be in Christ. How does that renovation come about? Understand the importance of the body of Christ and why unity is important. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 regarding love. Consider this. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. With this kind of love that the Lord here is is talking about, there is a bond that holds us to one another and keeps us from flying apart. I failed chemistry. I was sharing Wednesday night. um, So I got on Google Earth, or not Google Earth, uh, one of those, Wikipedia or something, and I, I did a basic lesson in chemistry again And I found out that neutrons and protons are the center of an atom, and around them fly these electrons. And so we're defining elements. And I wondered, what keeps those electrons from flying off everywhere? You know what it is? The protons. They hold fast. Correct me if I'm wrong, someone who knows something. (laughs) I know nothing about chemistry. But it was fascinating to me. And what does love do in the body of Christ It keeps us from flying apart when everything in us wants to fly apart. And if Satan divides us, if that unity is broken, if we believe false doctrines and we start going off over here and we start isolating ourselves from the body of Christ, what happens when we're isolated from the body of Christ? What else are we isolated from? From the head, from Christ And that's where Satan gets us. And what happens when when that happens? Our growth ceases to occur. I know. I know our culture has, has bemoaned and belittled the local church. Not important. I can get online. I can look these things up according to scripture and you read it time and time again read it read it in in chapter two he says it just just turn with me back to check for i want you to know um 
how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and from all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God, God's mystery, that is Christ himself. And then we read again in verse 19, and the false teachers, and not holding fast to the head, who is Christ, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. With this kind of love, we hold on to each other. This love is the kind, this, this dying self to self, this, this investing myself in someone else, and being focused upon them for their benefit causes me to hold on and them to hold on and we work together and we, we grow in Christ. It's a bond which unites us and being united to one another under Christ the head, we are blessed in one another. This is why unity is important. It's not because we can say we're unified. It's because we stay connected under the headship of Christ. And when we are connected to Christ using our gifts, we are growing. So while the false teachers will say, do these things and you'll become a superior Christian, Paul is saying, be indwelt by the love of God Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and give yourself for someone else. And you know what happens? The church grows and you grow and the kingdom is advanced. All of these wonderful things come about because of what he has done. And that's why it's not enough, friends, that we just check boxes and say, I did this and I did that. And it's not producing what I wanted it to produce. That love hangs on. And when it hangs on, the church is blessed. The church is blessed. William Hendrickson said this, Love then is the bond of perfection in the sense that it is that which unites believers, causing them to move forward toward the goal of perfection. Consider, friends, the false teachers again whom Paul was warning them about. They don't view Christ as being sufficient and they will separate you from Christ if you follow them because they don't hold to the head by their philosophies and traditions of men and their regulations. It is again when we hold fast to the head, that is to Christ, that that entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. That's Colossians 2.19. If we let go of the body of Christ we cut ourselves off from the head and growth in Christ ceases. This is why love, this is why love is important. It is that bond, again, God's love for us, in us, that we express towards one another that unites us, leading to that growth and maturity that uh, enables us to become what we are in Christ. And this is why, friends, we must absolutely go beyond the call of duty to love. Let us pray. We ask, Father, for your blessing to be upon your word as it is preached, as it is put out. We ask by your grace and spirit that you would produce in us that fruit which demonstrates your grace in our lives, which demonstrates a love for you which demonstrates a love for one another. We are weak. 
Would you please, O Lord, bless us for your name's sake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.